Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Uh, One of the fascinating things about the Beatles is how places and events and people just become interesting purely by being part of the Beatle universe. One of these people is Malcolm Evans, known as Mal Evans, their road manager or roadie from 1963 onwards, who has had a resurgence of interest since his prominent appearance in Peter Jackson's Get Back. Um, and, and it is true about the Beatles that we're interested in him because he's attached to the Beatles. I was picking my brains last night about any other famous road manager and I was coming up wanting. Do you have any other famous road managers? Mm, road managers? No. No, not really. Not off the top of my head. It's a bit like Derek Taylor. It, it is a bit like Derek Taylor. And yeah, big bands, you, you know, some of the big bands you get to know, their managers, you know, your Peter Grants and your Paul McGuinnesses mm. and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I can think of one famous roadie road manager uh, who was Noel Gallagher, but he's not famous because he was a road manager. He just was a road manager in a previous life. But this is the magic of the Beatles that we have mal to, uh, to think about. And I think for years, I think you would agree that for people like myself and yourself, Mal was this um, kind of fun peripheral person that we knew about, but he has really come to life in the last couple of years. Yes, and I think you're right. It is the Get Back movie in particular. You know, he was there in the background. You know, he pops up in films. You see him in the background of photographs, uh, particularly in the early days. But I think suddenly seeing him being Mal threw him into a different perspective. And he's, you know, he was born in Liverpool on the 27th of May, 1935, which puts him into my favourite category, which is younger than Yoko. I think it's always interesting to see who's younger than Yoko. Um, So he was younger than Yoko um, and he is a Liverpool native. And we don't really know much about him until he enters the Beatle universe. No, this is this is strange. I mean, I look through various biographies and obviously the, the, the books are about the Beatles when they become the Beatles. So why would they have information about Mal? But it, there doesn't seem to be much on the record until he gets married in 1961 to Lily or Lil. Mm. And we probably should say up top that, you know, we are on the on the horizon is a very significant Mal Evans biography that we have not seen yet. So hopefully this will fill in the blanks. Yes, because he was sort of such an ever-present character, there was a lot of speculation about diaries that he kept because he used to write little pieces for the Beatles' monthly book, and Mm. uh, he kept diaries. And Ken Womack is now writing a book, or shortly to come out, he has had access 
to the diaries and cooperation of the family. So I think a lot of the background information and sort of the the fleshing out of his his character hopefully will will be in this book. Yeah. Um, so he marries Lil in 1961 and he's in Liverpool. By 1962, he's a 27-year-old guy. He's working as a telephone engineer. Um, pretty solid career, you know, that would that would be a decent living and give you a pension, he said foreshadowingly. And uh, the, but his, a bit like Brian Epstein, his, his, his interaction with the Beatles is even, perhaps even more random and vague. It's completely random. I mean, the one thing that we know about Mal Evans uh, sort of pre-Beatles is he is a huge rock and roll fan and mm. in particular a huge fan of Elvis Presley. So yeah. massive, massive, massive Elvis uh, fan. So he, he talks about this and there's a quote in Anthology and he said, I walked down this little street called Matthew Street that I'd never noticed before and came to this place, the Cavern Club. I'd never been inside a club, but I heard this music coming out Real rock, it sounded a bit like Elvis. So I paid my shilling and went in. And you think, that's the best investment he ever made. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe. Um, he, uh, yeah. And f- so for someone who is like a, a rock fan and a music fan, it seems strange that he's, maybe he was just a little bit too old to kind of ride the wave of teenager 50s kind of thing um, to, to realise that there was rock happening under his nose in Liverpool. I think that's right, because, uh, as you said, by, by uh, 1961, he is married. By 1962, they have a child, Gary. Uh, so he's a married man with, with, yeah. a, with a kid, with a job. Uh, he, he says in that quote, you know, Matthew Street, I'd never noticed Matthew Street before. I'd never been in a club. So, as you say, I think he's just a little bit old, a little bit too grown up and a little bit too weighed down by family responsibilities. You know, it, it, if you think about what, how old, in inverted commas, people were uh, yes. at 27 when they were married and they had children, you know, they were, they were middle-aged in, yes. uh, in 1961, if you were 27. There was, the, there, was, there was no fun to be had after that. There was no fun to be had. So through the cavern, and it's a, it, it, you know, in many ways, it's a bit like the Brian story where he sees them and he is transfixed by them. And the thing I like about this kind of storytelling is that, you know, and, and Mark Lewison has alluded to this, is there is this wave in 62, 63, where the Beatles just, two people love them, four people love them, eight people love them. It just, yeah. it just grows. And he's, he's, he's kind of riding that wave. But he befriends George Harrison first, and then George Harrison puts him in the way of Ray McFall, the Caverns manager. Ray McFall is running the Cavern. It's, it's, it's changing from being a jazz venue to being a rock venue. Um, George Harrison strikes up a conversation and a friendship with Mal, but he suggests to Ray McFall, Mal Evans is, you know, six foot three, six foot four. He is the, the guy you need on the door. And yeah. I think he gets the job simply because of his size. Yes, which is not his demeanour. No, it's not his demeanour. I mean, he's not your archetypal bouncer. Hmm. Uh, everyone says he's this very amiable, gentle giant, is how they describe him. But it's just his sheer size is intimidating. Yeah, I've seen various reports of his height being between 6'3 to 6'6". Six, six. Um, he, yeah. he's, it's hard to know. He's definitely one of those 
he definitely is stands above everybody he's in the room with. He stands above. I think. I think if he's standing beside George Harrison, he's six foot three. But if he's standing beside <laughs> Ringo Starr, he's six foot six. I think that's the uh, yes, the metric. And uh, you'll be delighted to know, Stephen. I looked up celebrity heights. Richard Osman is six foot seven, and Taskmaster Greg Davies is six foot eight. If there's anybody who knows who those people are, that's just for comparison. So he was he was of that kind of demeanor. Um, but this is uh, in 1962 when he sees the Beatles, he starts doing this sideline working in the Cavern Club and he's delighted with himself, really. Yeah, he keeps diaries and in 1962 he writes in his diary it had been a wonderful year. Fair enough. Um, But he doesn't actually start working for the Beatles until the summer of 63. Yeah, he graduates then. He moves from from being the bouncer at the Cavern to effectively being... uh, uh, Rody and uh, Ringo talks about this in anthology, and he said Mal joined us full time in 1963. He was our bodyguard, but he was great at it because he would never hurt anyone. He was just big enough to say, "Excuse me, let the boys through." He was pretty strong. He could lift the bass amp on his own, which was a miracle. He should have been in the circus. <laughs> and, and I think again, he's not a Peter Grant style figure who's this aggressive, you know, physically intimidating and and has an aggressive way. He suits the Beatles because he is this kind of amiable character. He's mm. enough presence to get through the crowds, to get what he wants uh, and what the Beatles want without having to intimidate anybody. And within that kind of crazy year of 1963, the the thing that makes Mal a little bit different is he kind of comes into the Beatles universe and is accepted fully into the Beatles universe without having had the connection, say, that Neil Aspinall had, which was he was a school friend uh, or, yeah. you know, they're you know, they friends from before the time that they were, you know, by 1963, they're having hit singles, they're having, you know, their first albums coming out. You know, they are big. And what you'll kind of see is that Mal is kind of the last piece between Brian, Neil and Mal that are one of the insider group. And he stays that way through to the rest of the, the decade. Even though more people get employed over time and come into the universe, and particularly in the later Apple years, you know, you look at Get Back and it's still Neil, Mal, and everybody yeah. else is outside of that. And so he doesn't have that kind of past connection with any of the Beatles, but he he, he no, welds I, himself to them very quickly. Yeah, I think it's just that he just fits. And mm. as you say, he is older. So you're saying he's 27 in 1962. That's the age the Beatles are when they're breaking up. And <laughs> yes. George Harrison is that age when they when they break up. So it's again, it strikes me as slightly odd that somebody, you know, given the particular circumstances of it, Britain in in the early sixties, there's a kind of hierarchical thing and, and a respect for your elders and all the rest of it. Mal is sort of in the position now of taking instructions from people who are significantly younger than he is. Yeah. You know, and but but he's very happy to do that. And I think you mentioned Mark Lewis and, you you know, Mark will say there was a charisma that that just drew people to the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mal absolutely is is classic example of that. He just loved the boys in the same way that Brian would come to love the boys. Neil, I think, has a different relationship because he's their contemporary. But it's interesting that the two older people in in the uh, that inner circle, Brian and Mal, both have that love for for the band. And 
I guess then what's what's noticeable on the on the back of that is that the band reciprocated that. The band, if you're being very cynical, you'd say, well, they saw the value in it and they used it. But also, maybe more importantly, the band thought it was important to be loved. It was important to have, for want of a better word, those kind of vibes in the people who were in your universe. We see that with whether it's with Mal, whether it's with Brian, whether it's the way they connect with the girls that they're writing to, their fans, that when they're in Hamburg, they're sending these very personal letters. They have rather sweet relationship with a lot of the girls in Liverpool yeah. um, that they keep in touch with. And, and there is that relationship that in a way that, I mean, maybe it's because Jerry and the Pacemakers don't have the books written about them that the Beatles do, but you don't get a sense of other bands before or after that have that personal relationship with their fans. And this is, I think, an extension mm, yeah. of that. And they all speak incredibly fondly of Mal, both at this time and to the to the present day. And whether they necessarily that followed through in the later times in terms of their, their sort of financial appreciation of Mal, <laughs> but they all speak extremely fondly of him, and particularly in anthology when they're talking about the early days and these anecdotes, each of them trots out amusing anecdotes about Mal. Paul has the one where, you know, Mal was driving uh, the band through heavy fog in, in January 1963 and uh, he, Paul says, I remember one instant going up the motorway, the windscreen got knocked out by a pebble. Our road manager Mal was driving and he just put his hat on backwards over his hand, punched the windscreen out completely and drove on. It was freezing fog and Mal was looking out for the curb all the way up to Liverpool for 200 miles. That's devotion. That's devotion. The, the limousine of choice was an Austin Princess, which was not the most s- luxurious car of the time. No, it's a terrible car. Uh, it's a really kind of, it's like an upturned pie dish. Uh, I suppose it was very chic. And <laughs> he and Neil were sort of driving and Alistair Taylor says, you know, he wants to ask Mal why they were driving an Austin Princess rather than a Daimler or a Bentley or a Rolls Royce. And Mal said, oh, it's absolutely essential that we have an Austin Princess because the doors in that car open wider Mm. than any other car and the Beatles just need to be able to throw themselves into the car as they're running out of a gig or... (laughs) Whatever, and again, he's it's it's like a getaway yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. He, he is sitting there waiting for these guys to just throw themselves into the back so that he can get them get them away. But he becomes a sort of I don't want to say dog's body because that 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 that's not right. But a sort of Mister Fix It. For yes, them. you know he's a driver. He's a roadie. If they want something, he will get it for them. And he's just there, and you can see that he he very quickly becomes indispensable to them because they they very quickly get to a point where they can't go out, they can't go shopping, they can't walk down the street and Mal is there to sort things for them. Yeah, anthology time, George Harrison says, you know, Mal had a bag that he developed over the years full of bits and pieces because people would be asking him, you know, do you have a, an elastoplast? Have you a screwdriver? Have you got a bottle of this? And, you know, he would always have it or if he didn't have it, he would get it. And then George says, Rather an interesting statement we can pull apart. He was one of those people who loved what he was doing and didn't have any problems about service. Okay. <laughs> I want one of those. I want somebody to do that for me. Yes. Could, could you get me some screwdrivers? I'm servicing Vishnu over here. That'd be great. Thanks. You can service me and we'll have a tra- chain of service. If you, um, if, you, if you have the All Things Must Pass box where George is running through a version of Get Back, 
mm-hmm. and in the middle of it, he just says, uh, you hear, he stops, the band keep going and George is singing, then he stops and he goes, Mal, Mal, could I get a glass of orange juice and a mop? <laughs> so he's, he's obviously spilt his orange juice and Mal is sent scurrying away to get a mop and another glass of orange juice. Uh, from, from his magic bag. And he even um, wrote in his diaries that uh, he bought Ringo some undies for his visit to the doctor. That is dedication. That is dedication. Would you would you be happy to go and buy Ringo Starr's underwear? What, at auction now? Yeah, sure, why not? Check the petty <laughs> cash. Let's go. <laughs> I'll take it. Frame it, put it up in my cafe. That's all fine. Yeah. Um, as the Beatles take off, they are, you know, they go from being the biggest thing in Britain, as we all know, to the biggest thing in the world. And... So Mal, right place, right time. Um, you know, they, 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 they're touring Europe in 1964. They're in Paris. And uh, he's just there all the time. And he's bringing his wife and, and kid along. I think that's fascinating as well, that sort of Lil and Gary um, t- tag along. And Paris is, is one of the few occasions that I was able to find a note where he actually did have a bit of a scrap with the photog- with a photographer. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, he's just there as a presence. The other thing he's doing is he's signing autographs. Yes. So he and Neil are well-practiced at doing all four signatures of the Beatles. And I saw on an auction site recently there was a set of four autographs. And it's, it was quite cheap in that it was about six or seven thousand pounds. But there was a little note underneath it and it said, it is thought that the Paul McCartney signature uh, was by Mal Evans or Neil Aspinall. Yeah. So, well, it's it's that uh, it's that famous story. I don't think we've told it before. When um, George Harrison was being interviewed in the eighties, and he was handed a copy of Revolver to sign, and he was like, "Do you want the other three signatures?" And off he goes. You know, yeah, it's just the just the way it was. I don't watch programs like Pawn Stars where people are hawking items to sell, but there's often Beatles signatures, and people are like, "No, that's got no value at all." Tough. Yeah. Um, but uh, they are part of the entourage. They're traveling around the world, and as the Beatles become the biggest stars in history, uh, Neil and Mal are sitting at the back of the plane and not complaining. Not complaining. Uh, so yeah, so the Beatles, uh, Brian, they travel first class and everybody else travels in steerage in economy. And uh, Derek Taylor has a story where basically Brian is cajoled or forced into to upgrading Neil and Mal, uh, their travel arrangements. So he said, uh, Brian came through to the economy to get Mal and Neil and me out and into first class. He was sent through by the Beatles, actually. What are they doing back there? We made a fucking fortune on the tour. Get them up here. You go and get them. That, I mean, that's, that's quoted in the the, uh, the Brian Epstein story and in the, the Arena documentary. But So you think that's lovely. The Beatles are looking after Neil and Mal and making sure they're travelling first class and they're paid accordingly. Except... Yeah, um, let's... Let, uh, do you have a... Do you want to open the ledger there? The old Nems ledger? Creek, blow the dust off. How much everybody was getting paid. And we have George Harrison to thank for this. George, always across the financial <laughs> details. In <laughs> yes. anthology, he says, I recently found a piece of paper that shows how much we were actually earning in one period in 1963. From the starting figure of £72,000, we made about £4,000 each. Seems fair. Mm-hmm. Brian Epstein took £2,025 a week and Neil and Mal each got £25. Yikes. I mean, £25 was an all right wage at the time, but for yeah. doing this and being 
24 hours on call, on retainer, on availability and all the rest. It's not really a whole lot. I know they got to eventually get bumped up to first class and stay in some hotels, but it's a not um, it's not a huge breakdown if you're if you're running the percentages on that, you know. Not a lot. Not if the Beatles are getting four grand, Brian's getting two, and Neil and Mal twenty five quid each. Yeah, they're getting about one percent of what Brian got. Yes. Yeah, but they're happy in their work, Jason. Well, isn't that important? And I think if more people today were happy in their work, we wouldn't blah blah blah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, that was that was irony, folks. But because he is there in the times, he's. He's there in 64, 65, 66 when they're travelling around the world and he gets to be in the room when it happens, when the Beatles are doing all sorts of things, like illegal things. Like illegal things. So mm. he's this kind of Zelig-like figure. He is there, present at all of these significant events. So he he's there in the room when Bob Dylan supposedly introduces the, the, the Beatles to cannabis for the first time. And, and is that sort of very well rehearsed story about Paul saying, you know, uh, I'm having great thoughts on cannabis. You must write this down. And Mal is the person to whom you turn. You know, I need somebody with a pen and paper or a pencil and pad to write down these important things. And uh, the next day, Mal shows him the piece of paper and he's written down, there are seven levels. Who can deny it? You know, I was thinking... If Paul's next album was called Seven Levels, everyone would explode. Everyone would be like, yeah, we know what that means. Can we get in touch with Paul and, and suggest that? It was just like, you remember, you remember the vibes when he announced Flaming Pie? And he's like, I know what that means. <laughs> yeah. He should just call it Seven Levels and we'd all be punching the air going, this would be great. Um, yeah, and he would hang out with the crew. They'd often end up in the bag of nails at the end of a night out. Um, Paul and Neil and any kind of hangers on. Um, I think he called it freak out time. <laughs> Again, this diary and he writes, ended up smashed in the bag of nails with Paul and Neil. Quite a number of people attached themselves. Oh, that it would happen to me. Freak out time, baby, for Mal. So he's, <laughs> it, it, it starts at this point, I think it starts to change or I start, you know, I'm perfectly fine with the idea that Mal is the roadie, Mal is the, the fixer, Mal is the, but it's almost like he is the paid companion so particularly, particularly with Paul, yeah. whereas the other three are now living outside London. Paul is the bachelor about town and uh, Mal is the sort of trusted sidekick at 25 quid a week. We've credited the Beatles with a lot of things. Um, are we saying that possibly they have created also the posse or the crew, you know, where you have uh, yeah. maybe, Elvis, maybe Elvis is responsible for that one, where you just have people around you who... Or sorting out your problems and making your life easy and thinking you're great and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I do. I do think there's an aspect to the relationship that, perhaps from a 21st century perspective, you think that's that's slightly uncomfortable. It's a throwback to very rich Victorians traveling around Europe and having a paid companion that that not treated quite as well, not traveling quite as well, not eating quite as well. I mean, I'm sure that's just our perspective or my perspective from hindsight and Mal certainly didn't seem to, to consider it that way. Um, he mm. was just kind of hanging out with Paul and he seems to have a very close relationship with Paul in that sort of middle period between sort of 64 as well, 65 to 67. Whereas I say, the others are married, they're living outside uh, uh, London and Mal and Neil are there and kind of yeah yeah they're they're the mm. they're the crew they're Paul's crew 
And on you know summer sixty five, they're still touring. Um, you know, Mal is around on that tour of sixty five, August twenty third, baby, when it's all kicking off. Yeah. Um, but he's knocking around uh, Hollywood Bowl and Benedict Canyon when you know they're 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 starting on their journey for LSD and all the rest, and and also for the Elvis visit. And this is a this is a big deal for Mal. This is the big deal for Mal. And if you think literally, we're only a few years from him walking into the cavern for the first time. And then suddenly in uh, 1965, they're on the west coast of America and he's going to meet Elvis. You know, he is a bigger fan of Elvis. He loves the Beatles, (laughs) but at the end of the day, he is a bigger fan of Elvis. So this is absolutely momentous. And he has such a kind of charming but at the same time, quite a sort of prosaic story about it. So he, again, he writes in the diary, it was a thrill, but it was the biggest disappointment of my life in one way. I really am a big Elvis fan. At six foot three, there he goes, I'm one of the biggest. So I prepare my outfit to go and meet Elvis, send the suit to the cleaners, nice white shirt and tie, really ponce myself up. But when the suit came back, they'd sewn the pockets up. Now, I always carry plectrums, picks as they call them in the States. It's just a habit. I'm not even working for the Beatles now. This was written in the 70s. And I've still got a pick in my pocket at the moment. So when we get there, Elvis says, has anybody got a pick? Paul turns around and says, yeah, Mal's got a pick. He always got a pick. He carries them on a holiday with him. I went to go into my pocket and it was all sewn up. I ended in the kitchen breaking plastic spoons, making picks for Elvis. That was a disappointment. I'd have loved to have given Elvis a pick, have him play it and then got it back and had it framed. You could have framed a plastic spoon, but it's such a, it's, it is such a kind of, oh, Oh, you had one job, Mal. It's a very sweet story. Um, Yeah, he's, and I mean, you know, needless to say, the Beatles were Elvis fans as well. So they were, everyone was on the same page that day with being excited to meet Elvis. I I find it amazing that Elvis uh, in his own home didn't have a guitar pick, but uh, uh, there (laughs) there, there you go. But it is that that idea from the cavern to, Mm. to, you know, L.A. to Elvis, Elvis's house is quite a leap. He, like the Beatles, are just these Liverpool, young Liverpool guys caught up in this and he's he's there right uh, at every step of the way um, on that journey. And, you know, it should be noted, you know, I know maybe part of our tone is like, oh, poor Mal. But it wasn't like the Beatles said, listen, Mal, we're going to go see Elvis. You wait back at the hotel. No. He's just part of the gang. And, you know, Elvis has his crew on the day. And it is it is nice that they're still all together doing that kind of visit. Um, when we get, though, to the following summer, and obviously the summer 66 is their last touring summer and you know Mal's job is one that is you know essentially is born out of touring um the Beatles famously have their Philippines episode which does not go well I mean one could almost do a full episode on their trip to the Philippines almost that would be that would be fascinating I think to do that I'll write that down okay um but Mal is (laughs) once again when the when the you know what hits the fan and somebody needs to take the blame, it ain't John, Paul, George or Ringo or even Brian or Neil. Or Neil, it's Big Mal. So yeah, again, we have his first hand accounts of what happened in the Philippines and we won't go into all the the details, but they basically, they they sort of supposedly snub Imelda Marcos and and, uh, uh, don't go to a reception that she's organised. And basically their security is withdrawn 
the citizens of the Philippines are up in arms about this and they have to make their way to the airport. And Mal is the one that has to sort of help them fight their way through uh, to get through the airport, get across the tarmac, get onto the plane. All is well. They're about to take off. And then suddenly someone comes onto the plane and says, uh, there's tax to be paid. We need you to come uh, back and sort this out. And Mal leaves the plane convinced that he is either going to be killed or put in prison. And the last thing he says as he gets off the plane is, tell Lil I love her. And so, <laughs> so, yeah, the Beatles aren't going to kind of get off the plane and say, we're, we're going to come down and sort this out. No, Mal is one of the ones that has to go and, go and sort this out. And again, it's, it's, you have a first-hand account, which is, is fascinating. He's a valuable resource. Yeah, so he he basically ends up returning to the plane, but with all the money gone into the coffers of the yes. Philippines security services, I guess. But, you know, as as we all know, this is one of the events that kind of leads to the, the Beatles uh, taking a break from touring, which will kind of redefine Mal's relationship with the group because that reason for him being there, you know, changes. Um, but because the Beatles were taking a break, I think we should take a break as well. You haven't lost it. Haven't lost it. End of part one. Intermission. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So we get to the end of the Beatles touring lives uh, in August 1966. Paul McCartney is 23 years of age. Mal Evans is 31 years of age. He's also become a father for the second time in 1966. Um, But the relationship changes, but he is always there. And I guess the the point is once the Beatles are around, they need somebody there to do stuff. And so there's a number of kind of instances, uh, you know, with Sergeant Pepper and on the road to Sergeant Pepper, where once again, Mal is in the room where it happens. Again, he adapts... So the you know the job of Rody has essentially you know he's literally that's he's redundant um, that job mm. no longer exists but he just now has become so integral to the way I think they live their lives the individual Beatles that he's pretty much indispensable so yeah Paul decides to go on holiday uh, to France by himself in 1966 and uh, but then he asks Mal to come and meet him and he flies out to Bordeaux. They spend some time in France. They go to Madrid. Paul gets a bit bored, decides, I'd quite like to go to Kenya on a safari. So he and Mal go to Kenya. So as I say, it's back to that point about the aristocratic 
Victorian doing a grand tour and you've got your assistant or your companion traveling with you. So Mal is just basically his paid companion at this stage. But this is the point at which on the return flight from Kenya, Mal comes up with the name for the new album. Well, sort of. They're sitting in the nice end of the plane and uh, they're delivered their meal and there's these little pots with S and P on them. And, you know, Mal says, what's that? And Paul says... Sergeant Pepper. Well, he says salt and pepper, but Mal hears it as Sergeant Pepper and then hilarity ensues. Yes. That doesn't seem even slightly credible to me. Are we saying... <laughs> Why not? Are we saying that, <laughs> that Mr. Malcolm Evans, I put it to you, that you must... Everybody knows what S and P stands for on the crew set. Well, I... No, I, I'm going to step in there and say that, you know, that sort of... That, that's a that's a very minor detail, which perhaps might not have been obvious to people who hadn't grown up comfortably, uh, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, that S&P, you had S&P on your, your condiments, you know. But do they not have those in sort of every cafe and every restaurant or... Yeah, but you'd have the big thing of salt and you'd, you'd kind of know what it is. The sort of refined, minimalist... First class British Airways. Yeah, what is this? So, uh, you know, salt and pepper. And your, 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 your first response to that is when you're faced with a plate of food is not to say salt and pepper, but to say Sergeant Pepper, because that makes sense. Yeah, I, look, it's a good story. We're printing the legend here. We're printing the legend. It is a good story. And perhaps I've just been brought up in a too refined a manner. Yes, you've had the silverware. It was all inscribed. All Butlers. That kind of stuff. I have my own crew, my own, my own crew set for my third birthday. <laughs> Um, but it is also a classic kind of Paul story, which is, hey, Sergeant Pepper, there's a song in that, and off we go. But from from um, from Little Acorns, etc., etc. The other thing I was kind of surprised to learn about was that um, Mal and Neil were very much involved in the cover images for Sergeant Pepper. That, uh, you know, I think I had thought that the, the images themselves were sourced by Peter Blake and his associates, but not so. Not so, not so. Uh, and Neil talks about this in, in anthology. You know, they were he and uh, Mal were sent out to find the photographs of the people that it had been decided are going to be on this cover. Uh, and Neil says the sleeve was the result of conversations with Peter Blake. They had a list of the people they wanted standing in the background. So Mal and I went to all the different libraries and got prints of them, which Peter Blake blew up and tinted. And again, you know, from the 21st century, you could just Google that download the image, play around with it. They had to go around to libraries to find pictures of, you know, uh, the Bari boys and... and uh, uh, yeah, but, but I think that's that's quite interesting, though, because, you know, the, the, the cover of Sgt. Pepper is so iconic, as the kids say these days. You know, it's interesting to find out that those individual images were sourced by Mal and, uh, and Neil. I know they, they get put together by Peter Blake and tinted by Peter Blake, but the, the kind of the core images were sourced by those guys. So it could have been very different. It could have been, yes. I mean, if you think how many different photographs are there of, uh, you, you know, the individuals, Bob Dylan, say, you know, but they yeah. get me a picture of Bob Dylan. And then there's, there's an element of creative choice there that's being exercised by Mal and uh, by Neil. Mm, which, which which has an impact. Um, he is also present audibly on the Sgt. Pepper album itself, Mal. He is, uh, on a couple of occasions. So he plays harmonica on Mr. Kite. I'm not particularly aware of there being a harmonica on Mr. Kite, but he is there uh, in the background. But what you can hear, he is the chap that triggers the alarm clock in A Day in the yep. Life, just before... 
Paul's mock-up ballad about section. And if you listen to the on, on the anthology mixes or the Sgt. Pepper uh, earlier mixes of A Day in the Life, you can hear him counting, sort of with increasing sort of echo or tape delay, uh, counting where the orchestra uh, is is going through. Yeah. So the, 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 it was the 24-bar gap, so yeah. obviously he had a sense of rhythm. So as as A Day in the Life was recorded, obviously the, the, the orchestra was not there and Mal is counting out these 24 bars and uh, as was the want at the time, it's layered with echo, which is kind yeah. of very funny. And the signifier on the tape that the 24 bars were over was the sounding of an alarm clock. And like for many years, I thought... Oh, the alarm clock was just a quaint nod to woke up, fell out of yeah. bed. But it's another one of these kind of happy accidents that the alarm clock has nothing to do with referencing woke up, fell out of bed, but it works very, very well for that. Um, and yeah, Mal is on alarm clock. And most importantly, like your good self. Yeah. <laughs> he is one of the people who played the final piano chord on A Day in the Life, although you obviously did that some years later. Yes, I'm not on the record. I hate to break it to people, but yes, myself and Mal have that in common. And um, what a special thing that was. Um, but yes, he's one of the many pairs of hands that hammers down on that, that, that E chord at the end of Sergeant Pepper. And I think the thing Mal is probably though most remembered for on Sergeant Pepper was his writing credit, you know, when he co-wrote that song. And that must have set him up for, for like, oh no, wait, wait, hold on. Sorry. What am I reading here? Checks notes. Yeah, that's a bit strange. Isn't it? Isn't it? Hmm. He write, writes in his diary on the 27th of January 1967, um, started writing a song with Paul, that's Paul McCartney, folks, uh, upstairs in his room, him on a piano, and did more of When the Rain Comes In. Hope people like it, started Sergeant Pepper. So Mal is potentially, in his mind, co-writing Fixing a Hole with Paul. Yes, so again, during this period, he is very close with Paul. And at one point he moves into Cavendish Avenue because Paul doesn't have a housekeeper. So Mal, Mal <laughs> becomes a, a de facto housekeeper, but also he's there when Paul is writing the song. And on the 1st of February, he writes in the diary, Sergeant Pepper sounds good. Paul tells me that I will get royalties on the song. Great news. Now perhaps a new home. And then on the 2nd of February, he said, recording voices on Captain Pepper. You see, well, hmm. all six of us doing the chorus in the middle worked until about midnight. This is what lawyers would call a contemporaneous note. <laughs> he is making a contemporaneous note that Paul has promised him a writing credit on this song. That's good evidence. Hmm. That's good evidence in court. Uh, a contemporaneous note, not written six weeks afterwards, written bang there right at the time it happened but he uh, he doesn't really kick up a fuss you know he um you know mal you know reiterated and and reinforced all this information many years later from his diary and he apparently was asked at the time that you know it would be a would it, you know would it be all right if we didn't actually credit you because you know lennon mccartney is kind of the the hot item these days and he was like, oh, okay, that's fine. I mean, it's... that. Oh, it's just that's tough. Cru that's crushing. That is absolutely crushing. Because you think yeah. like a, a Lennon-McCartney-Evans credit on Sgt. Pepper, on one song on Sgt. Pepper, would have set him up for life. 
that's all you'd need, you know. Yeah. And it's also possibly possible legally um, that you can set up a writing credit to say Lennon McCartney, but on specific copyrights to say actually there's a 10% drawdown on this that needs to go to Evans and nobody needs to be any of the wiser. So sometimes the writing credits you see on an album, you know, may not reflect the true breakdown of who did what or who's getting money for what, you know, and some 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 co-writing credits are often not split 50-50, but behind the scenes it might be a 30-70 split. So, you know, it would have been doable without even having his name on the sleeve that he could have been, yeah. uh, you know, been, been getting a, a feed of money from that, which he did not. Um, and, and this is a recurrent kind of thing. He does lots of musical contributions over the years. You know, he's, you know, we kind of know maybe as the anvil on Maxwell Silver Hammer and, you know, he digs gravel for, 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 for rhythm tracks and, and, and all the kind of rest. And uh, there's also this, um, you know, Paul telling him to play the organ with one finger. What song is that? Yes, well, Paul, in, in many years from now, uh, says this is a sustained organ note on being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. So I said to Mal, look, that's the note. I put a little marker on it. When I go there, you hit it. And when I shake my head, you take your finger off. So for that kind of part, he was very helpful. But Paul is mistaking that. It's not Mr. Kite. It's... Uh, you won't see me. You won't me. see me. And it's actually mm. mentioned, it is mentioned on the sleeve that he did that. Or, yes, that's you know. right. He does have a credit there. And, uh, you know, I think that's something we should put to Paul when he's on the show, though we yes. put it to you. You made made an error on that. Um, he's on Tambourine on Dear Prudence, and that song has good tambourine. And yep. oddly enough, uh, a trumpet on Helter Skelter. Is that right? Yes. There's a trumpet on Helter Skelter? There's everything on Helter Skelter. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we should ask Paul about the writing credit. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Bee Gees okay, on I, Clive Anderson is what you'd face for that, I'll you know? take that off the list then. <laughs> Microphone pulled off lapel. Yeah. Um, fab Paul storms out of room. Um, but and, and we, we kind of see Mal, as we said, in, um, in, in, in Peter Jackson's Get Back, where he's literally not writing the song, but physically... Writing it down. Writing the song secretarial style. Yeah. Paul uh, says to Mal, you know, stick around with a pencil. Uh, it's a very odd job to have, you know. I have to say, it's a job I would have loved to have had in 1969. I can totally understand why you would love that job. You know, I think when you're in that s um, situation, you're like, well, I'm not Paul McCartney. I am not able to do what that guy does. Yeah. But if I can help that guy to do that thing he does... Happy days. I, I am not knocking Mal at all. I totally no, no, I, get I, it. And I absolutely he's a, get he's it. He's a brilliant facilitator. He is. And I feel sorry for him because there is this thing that, that he's part of the circle. He loves these guys. They are clearly fond of him. There is a friendship there, but he's also an employee. And there's a sort of a, there's a, sort of a tension potentially. And I think they navigate that reasonably well all the way through the relationship. And in the Get Back film, you, you know, going back to the fixing a hole point, you see the way Paul is writing Get Back um, and Mal and other people throwing in lines. So Paul says, Loretta Marsh, we're not sure about that, but put, put, put that in. Looking for a, something to last. Looking for a what? What is it? Looking for a home to last. And Mal says, looking for a love to last. And Paul goes, yeah, something like that, something like that. And then Mal starts saying, 
uh, looking for his blasted past. Maybe not so good. Trying to escape his past. Yes, that's all right. So he's, it's that. This is Ringo's looking for a blast from the past. Yes. And you're thinking, well, is that what he was doing with fixing a hole? You know, where they're mm-hmm. just, Paul is, is sort of uh, creating that. Pulling song, it from the air. Pulling it from the air. And people mm. are throwing lines or suggestions or, or, or what have you. And Paul is then working with those and it, it, you can see those lyrics in, in Get Back just change constantly and he's, but he's doing the same thing with Mal as you see him doing with John when they're talking the, yeah. they, to the point where they suddenly get to Tucson, Arizona he and John and it's the same process Yeah and he's uh, you know he's, he's also referenced in a lyric himself if you listen to some of the early versions of uh, Let It Be Yes I mean Mal was very clear that Paul says let it be, I've written this song about you or for you. And instead yeah. of Mother Mary, it starts off as Brother Malcolm. I think the first time I heard it was in the White Album uh, yeah, yeah. box set with that very early version. I mean, I'm sure it is, it is certainly buried in those 30 days of the Niagara tapes and all the rest of it, but I don't remember it sort of jumping out at me. But that, And that's what I like about those archive releases. Suddenly little things you think, oh, that you've heard about or the... Fine. There's that. Yeah, we had it. Here's the here's the proof. Mal is also traveling with the Beatles on their their travels at this time. He's off to Greece um, when they have that uh, notion of buying the island. He's part of the magical mystery tour tour, and we see him in the film. He's, yeah. he's there with his hat and glasses. Um, he's living in Sunbury on Thames, where he buys a house, which is uh, I had to Google Maps this. It's fifteen minutes from. Isher and from Weybridge, so he can pick up a beetle and bring them straight into town as needs be. Yep. This is this is what I mean. You know, every aspect of his life is revolves around them. Revolves around them. It's it's sort of in service to them. Yeah. And Sunbury on Thames is also near the Queen Elizabeth II storage reservoir. Fact fans, if you like reservoirs. No? Okay, fine. And then he goes to India for the big India tour, and he's even Classic Mal style, sent out a little bit early to just make sure everything's all right. Yes, just to sort of inspect uh, the ashram, you know, um, that everything is fine and uh, still catering to their every need. If you remember from our episode about uh, uh, the Maharishi, Ringo gets off the plane, doesn't feel well, demands that Mal find a doctor um, (laughs) because, uh, you know, his shots were playing up or something. And Mal says, when we arrived at the local hospital, I tried to get immediate treatment Ringo to be told curtly by the Indian doctor he is not a special case and will have to wait his turn. So off we go to pay a private doctor 10 rupees for the privilege of hearing him say, it's all right. Yeah. Geez, I could have done that. I would have done it for five. He believed, you know, he enjoyed his time in India. He enjoyed um, his meditation. You know, he finds, you know, he said uh, the peace of mind and the serenity one achieves through meditation makes time fly. And then after he leaves India, um, Harrison and Mal go off to visit Bob Dylan and the band. So he's everywhere. Did I mention this was my dream job? I'm quite happy to do this job for 25, <laughs> 25 quid a week. That I'd be fine. Now Absolutely that he's hanging fine. out with George. <laughs> hanging out with George, Bob Dylan, going to India. And again, in the same way, you you, you sort of, the, the Beatles sort of grow into each phase of their adventure. Mm. But you, you sort of think Mal is also doing that. He's also on that same journey from being working man in Liverpool to hanging out with Bob Dylan in Woodstock. And as Apple develops, Mal comes on as an employee of Apple. His uh, 
his salary at this point, you know, as he progresses, essentially, you know, he's now a personal assistant, which is what he is. You yeah. know, that's what he has been anyway. Uh, his Apple salary is now £38 per week. That's equivalent to £550 a week in uh, 2023 money, which is not a lot of money. However, back in 1968 on 38 quid a week, you could have bought a house for four grand. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Swings and roundabouts. Um, Yes, but he also gets involved in Apple as A&R. Yeah, uh, and again, this is, the, apart from the lyric writing, you think he really doesn't have the experience. You know, he's not a musician. Uh, he can play a one-fingered organ note. He can blow a harmonica, but he's not. But yeah, Mal and Peter Asher are involved in bringing a band called the Ivies uh, onto the Apple label. They're really the first band to sign to the Apple label. Peter Asher, and he had seen them at the Marquee Club. July 1968, they sign up and then they change their name to Badfinger. Hey. And Mal, some of those very first recording sessions are produced by Mal. And again, you've got to think, you know, what are his qualifications? He's been hanging around the studio. He's been present at innumerable sessions. So he's kind of presumably picked up a little bit of studio craft, even even if he doesn't um, have the sort of musicality or the musical education. Um, he he knows the sort of in, he knows his way around a studio, I suppose. Well, he does produce uh, Badfinger's you know biggest American hit, no matter what, a top ten hit. So he does deliver. If only we had Jeff Emmerich here, he he might tell you that uh, perhaps he had a hand in that. But yeah, he gets a producer's credit on a top five hit. Yeah, but he's still just on a PA's salary. He's not getting points as a, you know, as a producer or as an A&R man. It's not like he, I've never heard of any Mal Evans business manager. He's no. basically just being there. Whereas some, you know, Mal Evans needed a Mal Evans, basically. Uh, you know, and, and she's like 38 pounds a week, 500 quid today, but it's a 24 hour a day, 365 days a year oh, yeah. job. Well, as we said up the top of the show, you know, our, our knowledge and love of Mal has kind of grown because of Peter Jackson's Get Back. And I think for people who never knew who Mal was before, didn't have a clue, he really does stick out. You know, the Guardian Film Review, you know, mentions him saying he's the road manager who would have done anything for them. You know, when McCartney casually mentions he's walking off for lunch and it'd be good to get an anvil an hour or so later, Mal Evans is sitting there smacking an anvil. And... You know, it's very easy to love Mal from Peter Jackson's Get Back. But the reality is, in 69, in January 69, when all of this is kicking off, Mal's universe is very difficult, very precarious. Uh, You know, the start of the, what you could say, the downward slope or the uncertainty or the unhappiness, you know, starts to to kick in. And, you know, he's, we still have diaries and notes and things. And it's... um, it's it's quite striking how he sees himself and how he feels about the whole situation. Yeah, it's it, it's quite poignant. Some of the some of the entries. So there's an entry on the 13th of January 1969, and now again, this date I think is is interesting. The 13th of January. So they're in the middle of the get back sessions. You know, Mr. Klein has not uh, come in, and Mal writes in his diary, Paul is really cutting down on the Apple staff members. I was elevated to office boy and I feel very hurt and sad inside. Only big boys don't cry. Why I should feel hurt and the reason for writing this is ego. I thought I was different from other people in my relationship with the Beatles and being loved by them and treated so nice. I felt like one of the family. 
seems I fetch and carry. I find it difficult to live on the £38 I take home each week and would love to be like their other friends who buy fantastic homes and have all the alterations done by them and are still going to ask for a rise. I always tell myself, look, everybody wants to take from, be satisfied, try to give and you will receive. After all this time, I have £70 to my name, but was content and happy. Loving them as I do, nothing is too much trouble because I want to serve them. Feel a bit better now. Ego? Question mark. This is what I was saying about this tension between being a friend, feeling like part of the family, but also at the end of the day, you're not and you're an employee. And and he seems to have these moments of introspection, which I I just find very poignant. And interestingly, mid-January, he's noting the fact that Apple, you know, they're starting to cut down on staff. Paul is cutting down on the Apple staff members. But it's it's also the language of this kind of diary entry where he's talking about ego and feelings and emotions. This is this doesn't strike me as the language of somebody working for the post office in 1962. No, this is obviously the language of somebody who has been through a very significant experience. And I'm also particularly thinking of India and Maharishi and reflection and ego and self and all that kind of thing that he realizes that there's a very difficult dichotomy there where I do believe that he loves them and they love him and that he is a member of the entourage and, uh, you know, that that's very legitimate. But he is, what you kind of begin to know series, he is in a slightly different place to Neil Aspinall. But, you know, he still is a guy who needs to make a living, needs to look after himself. And how do you, how do you sort that out? Money is the great corrupter. <laughs> Neil, as you say, is in a different position because he is becoming more embedded in the business aspect uh, from the financial side. The other thing is Mal does have a wife and two children who I'm guessing see very little of him if he's spending 24 hours a day fetching and carrying for the, the, the Beatles. So he's still got to provide for them. He's got to uh, sort of pro- provide a house, etc. And again, in that, he's sort of mentioning, oh, he doesn't name names, but he's saying, you know, there are other friends who are being given houses or the Beatles are paying for alterations to their houses. So he can see that there are other people taking advantage. And he clearly, because of his love of the band, he does not want to be seen as being part of that. So I think it's a, I, I think it's an absolutely fascinating insight into what is happening in Apple at that time. This is only one diary entry. I think the book that's coming, I, I have really great hopes that, that, that we'll get a lot more like this um, from this period. Yeah, as far as we know, there's full access to the diary, so we'll, we'll know a little bit more. He's he's still, though, the only member of the Apple Beat entourage to, to be at Paul and Linda's wedding and is a witness to Paul and Linda's wedding in Marlebone Registry Office on the 12th of March. But he does, in April 69, he's telling George Harrison he's broke, you know. He writes on April 24th, had to tell George I'm broke, really miserable and down because I'm in the red, the bills are coming in. Poor old Lil suffers as I don't want to get a rise. Not really true. Don't want to ask for a rise. Fellows are having a pretty tough time as is. So he's plugged into the difficulties of Apple. Klein is on the scene at the minute. It's getting fractious. He's able to pick up on all of that and he doesn't really want to ask for a rise. And all of this is happening in the background of the Mal we see in Get Back who's shuffling on to the rooftop gig trying to turn off George's amp, trying um, trying to keep the police at bay. He's still doing a great, great job. He is present 
throughout. And he is also writing for the Beatles book, so he's, he's doing little diary entries there. But one of the things that I really hadn't realised in my excitement of hearing that private conversation recorded in a flower pot uh, between, mm. you know, John and Paul in the Get Back film when they're talking about George, is that Mal is there too. He's, he's sort of sitting at the table while they're having that conversation. But so is Ringo and Yoko and Linda. You get the impression from the film, it's just Paul and John sort of yes. sitting in a corner having a conversation. And, you, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg has, the swine has hidden a microphone somewhere. But Mal is, is part of that absolute inner circle, having those uh, uh, discussions. And he actually will write in his diary that is published in the Beatles book about George leaving. So he records the fact that on the 12th of January, he said that was the day that, quote, the fellows finally gave up all idea of doing uh, the TV show that was published in the, in the book. And um, he goes on to clarify for the fans, you know, there was no fight. George left because he wasn't feeling committed to the show. So he's, he's, he's an official sort of conduit for information. So he said there wasn't a fight, physical or verbal. They were, there weren't any tempers or shouting. I just couldn't believe it when I saw the press afterwards. Singing and playing together would always be fine with George. And the last thing he was suggesting was any breakup of the Beatles. So that day, January the 10th, George didn't want to stay at Twickenham rehearsing for a show. He, so he's, he's fulfilling a role of a sort of official spokesman through that particular publication. All good things. Alan Klein decides that he's going to fire Mal because Klein just sees him as, you know, he's one of the hanger-ons. Neil Aspel and Mal are living like kings, like effing emperors, Um, which is obviously, as we've laid out here, not true. He's on his 38 quid a week, but... Klein wraps them all up with the uh, the people who are freeloading at Apple and decides to get rid of Mal. And it is noticeable that Mal is very quickly reinstated by, um, you know, McCartney and Harrison and Stark, you know, complaining and protesting that, no, he is the, the one guy who needs to stay, which is noticeable. And he, so he does hang around. He does hang around. And it, it is interesting that he is reinstated and they do intervene because if you recall when Klein sacked or or had Peter Brown sack Alistair Taylor who had been there almost as long as Mal and he you know remember Alistair Taylor accompanies Brian to the cavern the first time Brian sees the Beatles so he's been around since then not one of the Beatles will pick up the phone to intervene on his path. Paul won't take Alistair Taylor's calls at this point, but yet Paul, George and Ringo, Mal, no, no, he he has to stay. Yeah. Um, and so he is around there in 1969. He's around when Abbey Road is happening and he's, uh, you know, playing gravel, as we mentioned earlier on. You know my name, look up the number. He's the Anvilmeister on Maxwell Silverhammer, including on the the recorded version. Supposedly Ringo, uh, Ringo couldn't lift the hammer high enough. There you go. So that's that seems quite bizarre from someone who is the click. But there you go. Um, but one of the interesting things which I didn't know about was um, we know through Mal that there were some alternate potential titles for Abbey Road. These are quite funny. Oh, they're they're quite terrible. <laughs> uh, so go on. What were the alternate Abbey Road titles? We all know about Everest, named after the cigarettes, and that didn't happen. 
Uh, but what else do we have? We have uh, four in the bar. Nope. Let's put a line through that. We should be trying to guess who... who I, I suspect that being a pun, that's probably a terrible pun by George, four in the bar. Um, <laughs> all good children go to heaven. Yeah. I mean, we know what that's a reference to, but it's a bit... Um, bleak. <laughs> yeah, a bit twee. I think that's, that, that's Paul, because it's from a Paul song. Oh, right. Fair enough. No, I'm not sure this, the way this is written down, uh, where I got this from. Is it turnips? Yeah. So turnips? Like turnips on trousers, not turnips, the vegetable, but turnips. No, but is it, is it turnips? Is it, again, is it, a, is it a pun and a reference to the fact that, you know, John didn't turn up until partway through the sessions? Is it kind oh, of... Oh, yeah, okay. In which case, I'm thinking it's probably another George... Um, Swipe. Yeah, portrait of a leg end type thing, yes. Uh, and Inclinations. Inclinations sounds like one of those sort of panpipe albums. Yeah. Inclinations. Inclinations. 32 of your favourite panpipe hits. Yeah, they're terrible titles. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. So I think Abbey Road, definitely the winner there. This is the end of the Beatles universe, um, you know, as a working, functioning band, as we all know. He does get involved in the Plastic Ono Band in Toronto, uh, you know, their show in September 1969, and he's quite happy. He's back to basics as a roadie, which is his favourite thing. Yeah, he's, uh, he's he's back doing the job that he was doing in 1963. And he says in his diary, I was really enjoying myself. It was the first show I had roadied for three years, and I was really loving every minute of plugging the amps in, setting them up on stage, making sure that everything uh, was right. Everyone wanted the show to go particularly well because Alan Klein, who had flown over, had organised for the whole of John's performance to be filmed. This was on top of it being videotaped by Dan Richter. Dan Richter is uh, John and Yoko's um, assistant. And I'm pretty certain it's Mal. If you know, I'm sure you listen to the second side of Live Peace in Toronto all the time. Non-stop. I had to turn it off so we could do this. And uh, at the end of... um, uh, the second Yoko Ono track, they just leave all the amplifiers with the guitars propped on. I think it's Mal yes. that w- walks out on stage and switches them all off. <laughs> Mal on knobs. On knobs. Mal on knobs. And if you remember, he, he similar kind of function at the Cambridge 69. He was there with an alarm yes. clock uh, um, and switching things off at the end. So. So he becomes Yoko Ono's roadie, which, you know, his 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 job just keeps getting better and better, I would say. But by Angel. the time we get to the end of the yeah, by the time we get to the end of the nineteen sixties, he has lived quite a life. You know, he's had this whirlwind existence with the Beatles. He's appeared in most of their films. He's in A Hard Day's Night. He's um, uh, When I first spotted him in A Hard Day's Night, I was very, very happy. He's carrying a bass in that scene where, Ring, uh, where John is, you know, mistaken for somebody else by this woman and he's just in the background carrying a double bass. That's always fun to spot him. Yeah. I thought that was that was nice. That was nice that they gave him a kind of little role. Well, it, it again, it just goes to show the closeness of the relationship that he's just there in the background. Um, he appears in Help. He's the lost cross-channel swimmer who pops up through the hole in the ice and then appears again at the beach in Bahamas. I, he gets a mention in uh, you know the the Beatles book at the time. You know, look out for the hot new star Malcolm Evans, who's going to be appearing in the movie. Um, he is one of the magicians who's casting spells in Magical Mystery Tour. He's the guy who's not a Beatle who's kind of wandering around in the background um, and uh, he's he's visible there and as we know he's in Let It Be slash Peter Jackson's Get Back so I feel the need to re-watch 
um, Yellow Submarine just to make sure nobody's kind of drawn a psychedelic mal in, in the background of some kind of scene. That feels that that should be um, appropriate. Um, but the, the, I guess the thing is, as we head into the, the 70s, you know, what does a guy like Mal Evans do? And he does get involved with All Things Must Pass and... You know, the, the Plastic Ono Band album, you know, he's credited for Tea and Sympathy. He's doing, you know, the Badfinger stuff. Um, and he's he's still slightly involved, but I guess his potential involvement, you know, or the, the, the jobs are there for him to do, he, he kind of does start to go adrift, basically. He does. So he's he is in the Apple camp. So he's in the John George Ringo camp at this stage. So I think his... his uh, contact or his relationship with Paul fades away, but he is there. He finally does get a writing credit on the Ringo album. Uh, if you remember the last track there, You and Me, Babe, that yep. big successful album. So there would be, be uh, royalties and uh, uh, income there. He is in LA for John's Lost Weekend. Again, he is acting as a producer. He produces the worst album ever made by a big name rock star, which is Keith Moon's <laughs> Two Sides of the Moon. I don't know if you ever listened to that. It is shocking. I have bad. tried to listen to it and life's too short. He is slightly adrift, as you say. He's uh, His role is no longer defined. He's not working with the Beatles. He's sort of hanging out. This takes its toll on his marriage and he's living separately from his wife. He is working on his autobiography. And this would have been, I think, really one of the very first insider looks at the organisation. John is very scathing about this. Well, you know, the, the word is out that he's uh, writing and John is saying, yeah, well, what that's going to be uh, 1963 Tuesday loaded the van, you know, and he's very dismissive uh, of this. But, but, the book was supposed to be going to be called Living the Beatles Legend. It was um, being written in 1975-76. It was supposed to be delivered uh, mid-January 1976 to the, the, the publishers. He, at this point, is living in L.A. And he is working with a co-writer. I, I have no idea how you pronounce this name, but I'm just going to say Horny as the co-writer. <laughs> Right. Um, H-O-E-R-N-I-E. Yes. John Horney. John Horney. Okay. John let's, Horney. Let's uh, you know, for, I think, I think uh, we, we should, uh, for comic effect. 5th of January, 1976, his, he's living in a rented motel with his girlfriend, Fran Hughes. On the 5th of January, she calls the co-writer, John Horney, and says, look, you know, Mal isn't great. You've got to come over. He is doped up and groggy. Um, I, I need your help. He goes over. There is an air rifle, which Mal picks up. Won't put it down. There's a tussle. Mal keeps hold of the weapon. And the girlfriend calls the police. There's a sort of terrible inevitability about the way this is going to play out. Four police officers arrive, and three of them go into the bedroom their report was basically that as soon as Mal saw the police officers, he pointed a rifle at them. It's an air rifle. They say they repeatedly told him to put down the weapon, but Mal refused. And they fire six shots. Four hit him and kill him. It's a very kind of shocking and, and sudden end. And you read a lot of stories about 
Los Angeles at that point in time. And, you know, it didn't seem to be any good for anybody. You know, Lennon's no. Lost Weekend was a strange time. Ringo gets lost in addiction. And by January 1976, whatever Mal had been chasing, you know, the, the police had been told that he was confused, that he was on Valium, that he was drunk. And um, yeah, it's it, it's it, it's perhaps the first part of the Beatles story where something horrible and brutal intervenes on the Beatles legacy. And it's 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 really, really shocking. He was um, he was 41 at the time. Um, he's it is reported in the news and um, it, uh, it says in the Los Angeles Times that he was the jobless former road manager for the Beatles, which is really horribly reductive and unfair for for what he had done. It's an incredibly brutal uh, description. Um, he, he, Mal was cremated on the 7th of January 1976. None of the Beatles were at the funeral, but notably Harry Nilsson, George Martin, Neil Aspinall and other friends were there. And Mal had no life insurance. He had no pension. So, you know, he uh, he would have been better off his wife later said if he had stayed working for the post office there would have been a pension there would have been insurance related to that and George Harrison uh, sent Mal's family £5,000 at the time to try and set him up and uh, in kind of the the, the final kind of insult to his life was that his ashes were sent back to England but they went lost in the post for a period of time Yes and uh, this leads to one of John Lennon's typical black humoured quips where upon learning of the lost ashes John said uh, oh they should look in the dead letter office oh dear well if we turn to what Paul has to say uh, at anthology time it's once again very classic kind of Paul compartmentalising of the story where he says uh, Mal got shot by the LA police department in 1976 it was so crazy so crazy he was a big lovable bear of a roadie he would go over the top occasionally but we all knew him and never had any problems the LAPD weren't so fortunate. They were told that he was upstairs with a shotgun and so they rang up, ran up, kicked the door in and shot him. His girlfriend had told them, he's a bit moody and he's got some downers. Had I been there, I would have been able to say, Mal, don't be silly. In fact, any of his friends could have talked him out of it without any sweat because he was not a nutter. But his girlfriend, she was an LA girl, didn't know him that well. She should have not rung the cops. But that's the way it goes. Strange... Um, statement, you know, that, uh, yeah, I don't really know what to make of that. Yeah, well, this is him speaking in anthology. And as you say, Paul is the great compartmentalizer. And you do get a sense, I think, from that statement, from John making a joke of it, that that there's an idea of sort of trying to create a distance between the Beatles and this terrible end result of this sort of tragedy uh, at the end of his life that, uh, yeah, he was a great guy. It shouldn't have happened. You know, if people had been there, it could have been stopped. But it's 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 not really our responsibility. And I don't think that's necessarily meant in a callous way. I think it's just a defensive mechanism that they all have. You know, that we have Paul's statement here. I think John's, you know, instinctive retreat into black humour is is another defence mechanism. Perhaps George arranging for the five thousand pounds is another defensive uh, 
mechanism. Oh, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of George's, uh, you know, they took our nervous systems. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's, you know, it's got to be incredibly hard to be a Beatle at any point post-1970 w- without having to absorb all the distress of all the things that happened to your expanded universe. I, yeah. I, I don't blame them really, to, to, to be honest. Um, the, the fate of the book and the manuscript of the book then kind of evaporates into thin air and a suitcase is taken by the police from Mal's apartment, supposedly containing recordings and photographs and memorabilia, which then gets lost for a period of time. Yes, this is very strange. So uh, we we know that he was in the middle of working on this book. It was within days of the the deadline for it being delivered, but everything just disappears. Um, This trunk turns up again in 1986 in New York, in the basement of a New York publisher and eventually get sent to his family. Um, now, I there is something that Yoko had some involvement in getting this returned to Mal Evans' family, but that's something that I think, you know, hopefully we maybe hear something about in Ken Womack's book. But essentially, all of the papers go back to the family. Nothing is done with the diaries, and these become almost like a kind of holy grail. You, you know, it's, it's, it's like that... Um, tell-all interview with Jane Asher. It's the thing that people want to, you know, it's an aspect of the story that isn't told. We know in Mal Evans' case that uh, he, he was working on something. His estate in 1992 sells the handwritten lyrics, John's handwritten lyrics for A Day in the Life. They sell for £56,600 at Sotheby's uh, in London. And then in 1996 they also put up uh, handwritten lyrics to with a little help from my friends but they can't sell those because Paul intervenes but Paul is so nice why would he why would he want to intervene on somebody trying to um you know make a uh, make a make a make a living make a living off the back of selling his handwritten lyrics this is 1996, so you think about where the Beatles are in 1996, an anthology, and in the 15, 16 years since December 1980, there's suddenly an explosion in the market for memorabilia and things like this. 1996, anthology is coming. The The, the Beatles are, I suppose, reconnecting with their own legacy. This mm. does not play out well in the press and in one sense it's a it, it's a bit of a misstep by Paul or by the people around Paul in how it's handled and there's a very not sympathetic to Paul article appears uh, in the Independent Friday the 10th of January 1997 again the tone is is very interesting it says the newly knighted ex-Beatle tried to head off criticism after it emerged that he had prevented Lily Mal Lily Mal that's what they called her. 60, selling p- the paper on which he had scribbled the words for with a little help from my friend. She had hoped to raise £60,000 for her old age by selling the paper at Sotheby's. She told a BBC One watchdog investigation screened last night. Her husband, Mal, had been the Beatles road manager for many years. He died in a shooting accident in LA 21 years ago, leaving her without a pension. The Beatles sent her £5,000 at the time, which she said had been most helpful, but she had worked as a secretary to support herself since and could not understand why Sir Paul was stopping her gaining a nest egg for her final years. I didn't know why he would want to do that. It wouldn't be for the money and he lets other people sell, so I don't know why 
he wouldn't want to stop me. If my husband had remained in his post office job, I would have been better looked after. And her son Gary says, I think if everything dad did for him, he'd be on 24 hours notice and he'd do anything for Paul. He loved the guy. To do this to my mum now, I just don't think it's right. I don't think he can have much of a conscience. Well, Paul comes out swinging for this and it's probably worth pointing out that Watchdog is a reasonably popular BBC consumer affairs programme if if people around the world don't know what that is. So it would get a couple of million viewers. But Paul comes out with a statement that says, uh, you know, the programme is trying to make the Beatles out to be widow beaters. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, that's a, that's a quite an opening statement, yeah. if ever there was one. I would like to meet Mrs. Mal and discuss this and come to some arrangement to see that she is taken care of and that the lyrics are returned. They were never Mal's lyrics and therefore any relative of Mal's, such as Mrs. Mal, does not have the right of ownership to those lyrics. To show how ridiculous this whole memorabilia market has become, there's someone in the US who owns my birth certificate. How people can feel that is right is beyond my comprehension. I am surprised that Watchdog is doing this report. I thought Watchdog was normally on the side of people who have been ripped off, not on the side of people who are doing the ripping off. Yikes. I don't wish to cause any trouble for Mrs. Mal or for her children, whom I remember fondly, but I do feel strongly that those original manuscripts should be returned to their rightful owners. That's that's not a PR Paul statement that you normally get. No, it's very un-Paul. And you can see he's obviously angry, He's obviously annoyed. You've got to, I think, point the finger at his management team or his PR team. This is not a good look at all for Paul. Um, he's effectively communicating with Mrs. Mal. I mean, clearly that's an affectionate name he must have used in the 60s. And I think it's funny that the Independent referred to her as Lily Mal, yes. as if they picked up that from Paul's statement that that's actually a, 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 a surname. But... If, if you remember, this is anthology. This is around the time that Linda is, has received her diagnosis, uh, her breast cancer diagnosis. It's a difficult time. Difficult time. There is, there is a sort of spat going on with Yoko around this time about the, the uh, Lennon-McCartney, McCartney-Lennon. There is a lot happening in Paul's universe that the general public are not aware of, particularly with Linda's uh, illness. But I think... Jeff Baker was his sort of spokesman, his PR guy at the time. And I think this is a pretty poor response. They take out an injunction to stop her selling mm. uh, uh, the papers, which is a sort of an emergency thing to, to stop something happening. And then you go into court and argue the merits. Jeff Baker says Sir Paul has twice offered to help Mrs. Mal if she was in hardship, but she had not taken up. He was prepared to make her a substantial personal donation Again, there's even that, it's a sort of, I am prepared to make a donation as if it's a donation to charity or it's a, where she is taking the view, well, these are things that belong to my husband and I'm, that I'm selling. Yeah, the, the, the correct way would have been to just do it off book yeah. and not draw attention to it. And there is an argument to say that the, the Evans family, you know, perhaps should have gone down that route before going straight to the auction houses. But it also kind of indicates that there wasn't any avenue between the Evans family and Apple slash the Beatles Incorporated by the 1990s. So it, it kind of becomes this type of, you know, public back and forth. I think that's possibly the saddest aspect of it, that after all that time, 
there is no point of contact. You know, not necessarily just mm. with Paul, but with Ringo or with George or with, with Neil Aspinall or Ab- This is a diminishing group of people who went through something only those four or five people, you know, and I'm including George Martin and Brian Epstein and Neil and Mal and the four Beatles, only they know. And they had this tight group. And by 1996, the, the Evans family are sort of adrift from that. And there is no point yeah. of contact. I mean, I'm absolutely certain that if there had been a point of contact, um, I'm thinking of things like the, in spite of all the danger, acetate, you, you know. Would, yes, Paul and Apple, you reach out, they buy it, there's an accommodation, there's a... But I think the circumstances in, in, in late 1996, early 1997 are just not good for Paul. It's also interesting that Paul is is, is the, the one that's taking the lead here. Not it, It's not the corporate Apple, it's Paul yeah. saying, that's my handwriting, it's my lyric. It's my well, the other thing that's kind of kicking off at the time is the Star Club tapes, you mm. know, which George is kind of taking the lead on. But it is curious that in that pre-anthology phase, you know, Neil Aspinall as the head of Apple was very much involved in archive curation. Yeah. And it is unusual that he did not realise that there was, you know, particularly after the first set of lyrics were were, were sold in 1992, he didn't realise that that was a, a treasure trove that perhaps Apple should have stepped in and, as you say, come to some accommodation. The, the Day in the Life lyrics that were sold for £56,000 in 1992 were resold 18 years later in 2010 for 1.2 million. So these things, the value of these things is only going one way, I would say. You were right to buy them. <laughs> I remember at the time I would have been a, I would have been a mere teenager around 1992, but I remember all this stuff. There was a, a big explosion um, in, 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 in rock memorabilia going for sale. And I, I kind of sent off and I, I bought one or two auction catalogues. I bought the Sotheby's auction catalogue for the, the, the cartoon cells for Yellow Submarine, which I still have. And, you know, they, they were selling cartoon cells, you know, from the actual movie. And some of them were like, you know, 250 quid, you know, you could buy a Blue Meanie for 250 quid. And, and I think those things were bargains at the time, but I wasn't really in a position to, to buy them, you know, and people did well, I think. Well, looking back, I mean, one of the things that I find that I've included there with the notes is is handwritten lyrics for a song written by Mal. And uh, that was sold at auction for 80 quid. I thought I would have bought that for 80 quid. <laughs> Not lyrics to a Beatles song, lyrics to no, a no. Mal song that uh, that never happened. Can I read some lyrics? Go on. Dear Judy, let me say from the start, you've got a special place in my heart. Only you and I know that I can't let it show how I'll miss you when we are apart. <laughs> and uh, I hope Dear Judy has nothing to do with um, George Martin's missus. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be embarrassing. No, there's also an A7 chord drawn on the piece of paper. So... You know, everyone loves a song written on one chord. It might have been, you know, like Pump It Up or something. I don't know. Um, but again, all of this stuff, I think, uh, hopefully it will, will, will be dealt with in, in the book uh, that's coming. Well, that's where we are now in 2023. Uh, you know, as we said, in 2021, when the Beatles Get Back came out, we got an insight into hearing what he was like, seeing what he was like, seeing how he interacted, seeing how he loved them. And really, they did love him at the, at the end of the day. I don't, I don't think anybody wanted any of this to, to, to happen. Um, but yes, um, we do have the upcoming 
book from Ken Womack, which was announced in December 2021, right at the height of Malamania. <laughs> and um, it is due to come out a little later this year. Who knows, by the time you're listening to this, it, it might already be in your hands. And it has the full support of the family, access to the diary and archives. And, um, you know, Mal's son, Gary, says, you know, my dad meant the world to me. He was my hero. Um, before Ken joined the project, I thought we knew the story of my dad. But what I knew is in monochrome. 15 months later, it's like The Wizard of Oz, dad's favourite film, because Ken has added so much colour, so much light to the story. Ken has shown me that dad was the Beatles' greatest friend. He was lucky to meet them, but they had more good fortune with dad walking down the cavern steps for the first time. And friend is an interesting word because I think a lot of Beatle fans just like the notion of the Beatles as friends, as pals, as a, as a group. And Mal, you could say, was perhaps the ultimate pal and friend. And there is a throwback to The Wizard of Oz in, in the Get Back film itself. There is. I think this is, this is very interesting. So uh, in Get Back, Paul says, this is in the context of uh, The Long Winding Road. He says, I was thinking of having a weather obstacle storm clouds and the rain the clouds disappear and Mal says it's sort of like the Wizard of Oz did you ever see the Wizard of Oz and Paul says no no I didn't and Mal says the yellow brick road and Michael Lindsay Hogg says heartbreaker yeah it's great so Mal Evans um, what a guy Um, if we can separate his uh, the tragic end of his life. He had a wonderful insight. He had a wonderful kindness. And as we said right at the top, he's another one of these people who was the right person at the right time, who is interesting in and of itself and more interesting because he's part of the, the Beatle universe. Yeah, I think he, he did them uh, a great service. Uh, I don't use that in a kind of disparaging way. I think he was a vital part of that group. He had went through all of those experiences uh, uh, with them. And uh, yeah, I think he deserves to be more widely praised and more widely known about. Yeah, he really facilitated a lot of how they went about their lives in the 1960s and helped make it all happen. Um, But what do you think, everybody? We remain available in all the usual places. The Nothing Is Real Facebook group. Uh, We're also available on X. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, X me on X. Yeah, X me on X or, or whatever it is. I don't know. Um, you know what I'm talking about, Twitter. Uh, at Beatles Pod. Uh, we're also on Mastodon. And uh, uh, so search for Nothing Is Real on Mastodon as well, if you like your federated decentralized networks. Instagram. William is still doing work on Instagram. There's never any TikToks. And the Nothing Is Real website at uh, www.nothingisrealpod.com. We have about 50 bonus episodes available on Acast Plus. We want to thank all our supporters so far. And if you haven't supported us yet, maybe you might like to consider it, including all 16 songs of 1966 and again information is available for all of that at nothingisrealpod.com but for now my name is Jason Carty my name is Stephen Cockcroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.